0: Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Welcome, everybody. My name is Gabe Scheinman. I'm the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. It's great to have you with us here. This is part of a book talk series that we run called America's Role in the World. If you're interested in other talks that we've done, you can go to our YouTube page, go to our website, alexanderhamiltonsociety.org. If you're interested in getting involved in some of our programming, either on your campus or a different campus, we have 55 chapters across the nation, as well as young professional programs here in Washington, D.C. and other professional chapter events in Washington, D.C. and New York. Today in particular is a very exciting time for me because my guest today is Professor Bob Lieber, who's a former professor of mine, actually. But Professor Bob Lieber is the Emeritus Professor of Government and International Affairs at Georgetown University, where we actually, he's also served as one of our chapter advisors over the years and as year in, year out, one of our stronger chapters. Professor Lieber- A prize-winning chapter, I might. Prize-winning, yeah. In different years for different things for that matter, too. So prize- winning chapters. I stand corrected. Indispensable chapters to play on today's sure. subject, but where he previously served as chair of the government department. He's the author, editor of, I think, 18 books. So he's prolific. I feel like I read a book from Bob once every two years. And we were just talking about before what to do with a lot of books when uh, you don't have the space for them. And I don't know what you're going to do with your own books, Bob, because there's there's way too many of them. And he's here today to actually discuss his most recent book, Indispensable Nation, American Foreign Policy and a Turbulent World. Bob, Welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm
1: delighted to be uh, here with you in the Hamilton Society, which is a great outfit.
0: Great. Thanks, Bob. So let me, the book is basically an argument for why the United States Mm -hmm. must for its own reasons and for many others Mm -hmm. remain the sort of leading power in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's structured in such a way where each chapter is almost sort of trying to debunk, let's say, Mm -hmm. an argument that's countered for that. But before we get into the meat of it, one thing that I liked, and I actually couldn't find in the book an explanation for it, but I really love the cover. Mm -hmm. And that in particular is because, which I know is not necessarily what the author chooses or is involved in. No, not at all. So maybe we, we, you can thank your publisher or whoever. But what I like about the fact is on the cover, Indispensable Nation actually has one of the stars in the back is actually lit up. And so it almost looks like it's an asterisk, uh, no. essentially. Yeah. And so my question for you is, and maybe I'm just trying to read too much into things, but is the indispensable part the asterisk to this story that it's actually more complicated and maybe we need to talk about it? Or is the nation part, the asterisk part of this argument, because Part of the discourse, obviously, in American foreign policy, is that America is not only a nation but also a cause because of the principles that have undergirded our founding. So I don't tend not to judge a book by its cover, but I really like this cover. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, and so, interpret for me the smoke signals that come from one of the stars being lit up, and you have the asterisks in the title.
1: The um, both indispensable and nation are essential to this. They are both necessary. They are both indispensable. The asterisk was something that the graphics designers added, but it lends a certain pizzazz to the title. But America's indispensability is a part of America's identity and purpose and exceptionalism. But at the same time, America's role as a nation, which is a nation not based on ethnicity, but based on an idea, a group of ideas, as expressed in the Constitution, is also absolutely central to this America's role in the world and to the sustaining maintenance and advancing of a decent world
0: order. Today, I feel like that those two concepts, which I think you speak about quite Mm -hmm. fluently, they're not contradictory to each other. In today's discourse, I feel like even those two concepts are positioned as contradictory to each other, that Mm -hmm. there's a discourse both on the left and on the right that actually, no, 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 if America is a cause because of these principles, this is a cause that has gone off the path and isn't rooted where it ought to be on the question of kind of nationhood. And then there are others who say, you know, we are too rooted in nationhood and there's a larger fight going on here. The president likes to talk about democracy versus authoritarianism in some different ways. How do you see this discourse having progressed and how does it impact the debate surrounding, let's say, what the American role in the world ought to be? Both these
1: concepts, both these realities, are challenged and even under attack. We'll get into it, I suppose, before too long, but the notion of America's indispensability of its active world role, its leadership in the world is under assault from multiple quarters at home and abroad. And that's why the book was written. Secondly, about the nation itself, that too is under attack. Previous generations understood something about the value of America, what it represented, and why they were glad to be in America. It's still the case for immigrants. Why do you think immigrants come here and want to get in from all quarters for all kinds of different reasons compared to, say, wanting to go to Iran or Russia or China or North Korea, just to cite a few, because the U.S. represents something of great value to them and rightly so. But especially in elite institutions, a generation of young elites and young people more broadly are being raised to not only question America, which is fair enough, America is very imperfect, always has been imperfect, but to ride and devalue America as racist or imperialist or aggressive. And you can't have a decent foreign policy, let alone a viable polity itself, if people who are part of that country's leadership or potential leadership, culturally, socially, politically, simply don't accept the values and the significance of what America is as a country, especially in terms of its history and values. That's very disturbing. And it's something I take on in the book, especially in chapter six, when I talk about the domestic basis and politics, economics,
0: and culture. Well, so that actually leads to the question of where we're going to go, which is a little bit what you discuss in chapter six, but actually also what you discuss in chapter one, which is, for lack of a better term, the fundamentals of American power.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I remember in some of your previous books, you were arguing against some of what we used to call the declinists, mm-hmm. uh, people who thought for a long time for already, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, mm-hmm. or even before that. I mean, they were declinists getting back to the Vietnam era or whatever, that you were kind of standing athwart and saying, no, America's not in decline. The fundamentals that we have are still strong. Uh, our fundamentals are better off than a lot of other nations in the world. Here, I think you admit, at least in the first chapter, that actually for a variety of reasons, demographic, economic, budgetary, the rise of others, we certainly have, our power has declined, at least relative to others. Was there a turning point for you? Was there a moment, a decision, a policy, or maybe it was just a long-term trend that finally kind of, you know, came home to roost where, you know, I think your views maybe shifted on this? Well, there are a couple of things
1: going on. One is, I'm not sure America's decline is the best word, but... An erosion of America's relative standing in the world as measured both geopolitically and empirically. And that's been the case for multiple reasons. One of them is the rise of China, which is unprecedented in human history in terms of the speed, the breadth, the size of the population, and so forth. And something we had a great deal to do with in terms of promoting that engagement, that rise through globalization, membership, in the World Trade Organization, and so forth, as well as a slew of ideas, technological optimism, which really peaked in the late George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration, that as China became more prosperous, more bourgeois, more rich, higher GNP per capita, that sooner or later, that was bound to have an effect on Chinese society and values itself that China would become more bourgeois, more moderate, more progressive, more developed, more free. And after all, comparative politics studies tend to show a correlation, not a causation, but a correlation between wealth per capita in the society and the propensity for democracy, openness, and so forth. The problem is that China, for its own historical and cultural reasons, as well as The strength of the totalitarian Chinese Communist Party has gone in another direction, especially in the last 10 years under Xi Jinping, its current leader. So that's one big factor, the rise of China. A second factor is the spread of geopolitical strength, economic strength around the world. America's economic policies pursued after the end of World War II its openness, and especially since the end of the Cold War, achieved their ambition, which is to try to make the world more prosperous, try to reduce poverty, and improve the human condition everywhere possible, especially through trade and liberalization, economically, investment, and so forth. A third factor was we tended to exhaust ourselves in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. There were reasons for those, especially in the case of Afghanistan, but also Iraq. But both wars ended in an unsatisfactory way of sorts. That is, the U.S. did not achieve its major aims in both cases in very different situations. And the call to end the endless wars, for instance, and the forever wars, was heard increasingly on right and left politically in the United States. And that led to a certain desire for pulling back from the world, which you see manifested in the policies of Barack Obama after he became president as a result of the 2008 election, and Donald Trump after he was elected in 2016. One more reason. Mike Mandelbaum, in a very interesting book published the year before last, argues that the U.S. went through five different ages of its growth in power and influence. And after the end of the Cold War, we entered a period of hyperpower, which was very temporary and unusual. And that era of hyperpower ended, according to Mandelbaum, sometime in the middle of the last decade, sometime early or in the middle of the aughts. And I think that was inevitable as other countries recovered or prospered and grew in economic and geopolitical strength.
0: So I think a lot of people who would criticize your prognosis as to what to do would actually still agree a lot with your diagnosis mm-hmm. with the, the ones you just listed out there. We've enriched our adversaries. We pursued ultimately futile ends, let's call it mm-hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan at great cost. We have economic problems here at home, societal problem. And the list kind of goes on. I, I think a lot of people actually agree with that mm-hmm. analysis here, but your conclusion is is functionally all these things are going to be worse If the United States does not maintain the traditional role it's played at least of the last 80 years, or if it lets others, China in particular, but others kind of play that role, what leads you to come to that different prognosis? Whereas a lot of others will say, and that's exactly why we actually do need to pull back more. It is because we have all these problems here at home. We cannot afford to be able to do this. And this comes in the most crude ways. Some of the debates we've had in Washington over the last Mm -hmm. year over some of our military aid to Ukraine where an argument that you're increasingly on the right, but it's been on the left for a long time, which is, well, why should we care about Ukraine's borders when we can't secure our own southern border? Why should we pay for Ukraine's government salaries and reconstruction when there's a baby formula shortage or things along those lines? So why is it that you come to a different conclusion, even though many will actually agree with your diagnosis? Because
1: those things are not mutually exclusive. It's a myth that we can pull back from the world and be fat and happy here at home. We can't. What's at stake is not only our geopolitical security and security and future of our allies and friends, but our own interests, security and values here. And the prescriptions on right and left and among realist academics vary widely, but all of them are based on a false dichotomy. That is, we can either retrench, withdraw, The offshore balancers pull back, and in some extreme cases, on right and left, withdraw from NATO, withdraw from our commitments in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Let other people take care of it, and we'll be just fine. Not only that, we can step back in if our interests are threatened. The answer is no, you can't. There is no free lunch in life, and there's no free lunch in foreign policy. And those arguments. Whether they come from the Quincy Society here in Washington, which is funded both by George Soros on the left and by one of the Koch brothers on the right, or the views of some of the people on the far right who want to pull back new nationalists who want to make America great again, but let the rest of the world take care of itself, or on the left, whether from the Noam Chomskys of the world, the anti-imperialists, or those who see America as a force not for good, but for bad in the world. They all come up with arguments, which really don't work. When you say to them, what would happen if we actually did what they imply?
0: Well, so let's work through some of those Mm -hmm. alternatives that others put forward. And I think you spent a lot of the book actually shooting down in that way. So the first is about if when America steps back, others will actually step up, even others that are friendly to us, let's say, like our European partners. For the longest time, it was American foreign policy to essentially avoid or not let an independent Mm -hmm. European military force or even something that could challenge, let's say, the predominance of NATO and how we think about our security situation in Europe. Today, there seems to be actually an increasing encouragement of something like that, partially as out of burden sharing, partially out of concerns about our own inability politically to sustain some of the commitments there. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on whether we can or even should allow or encourage, let's say, more independent European security contribution, at least on in Europe?
1: Well, there's always been an element of nuance here. I'm not arguing that America can be all things to all people, that America can be the world's police. It can't. It has enormous resources of strength across the board, but they're not unlimited. Even at the height of America's uncontested power, say in the decade after the end of the Cold War, it was never the case that we always get everything we wanted and we can do anything we wanted successfully and at reasonable cost. It just wasn't true. But the question is one of what kind of nuance? Where's the Aristotelian golden mean? There's been a debate over the years, ever since NATO was formed, about the European military and among the Europeans themselves, as well as Americans looking in on that. Whether European military strength should be seen generally in partnership with the United States or more and more autonomous. Under General de Gaulle as president of France, 58 to 69, the emphasis, well, Gaulism implied France as almost a third force. De Gaulle withdrew the French military from the integrated military command of NATO, although he remained a member of the North Atlantic Treaty with its Article Five guarantees of security. But that's always been debated, and even to this day among Europeans, there are nuances. Nonetheless, it's in the Europeans' interest, America's interest, and the interest of those who want a more decent world order that the Europeans' own capability be enhanced because the U.S. can't do everything and the Europeans have a shared interest with us in values and security and geopolitics of becoming more capable. Now, the best thought experiment of this is the Ukraine war. In the run-up before Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th of this year, the calls for America to pull back and withdraw in the various parts of the political and intellectual spectrum were very prominent. And I think to some extent, the Russian invasion of Ukraine hasn't silenced those voices, but certainly muted them to a great extent, because it's a great reminder that events have a way of imposing themselves on the world and on policymakers and on shattering wishful thinking. The views of liberal internationalists, who may come back to later, are particularly vulnerable here. But imagine if Russia had invaded Ukraine and a Bernie Sanders were president or one of the isolationist or neo-isolationist figures on the right were president or shaping America's foreign policy. Imagine the U.S. had just sat this out. Maybe it withdrawn from NATO or was determined not to lift a finger to aid the Ukrainians. Do you think there is any reason why or how? the Europeans would have played the kind of role they have been doing in helping with the U.S. to support Ukraine now, financially, politically, economically, and militarily? Absolutely not. There's a collective action problem in Europe in that you don't have a real leader, a hegemon. The Germans are unwilling and unable to play that role, although they could. The Brits might have under other circumstances, but that's gone. They need In this case, the role of the United States, so that if Poland or the Baltic countries or the Czechs or the Danes or the Norwegians were to be as engaged as they are now in helping, they would face the possibility of blackmail or intimidation by the Russians saying, "Okay, the U.S. isn't here to help protect you and we just might take some actions you're not going to like. The Russians, I should say, don't have the ability to do that because of NATO and the Article 5 guarantees. They and we and the Europeans know that an attack on any NATO country, all 27 of them, is an attack on the United States itself and would be met with a strong American response. Take away the U.S. from that equation and you're in a different world, which is why Ukraine was very illuminating. And let me say, the Ukraine war happened after the book went to press, but
0: it strengthens my arguments. So on the one hand, I'm in large agreement with everything you just said. On the other hand, and I'm always a little leery of making too many historical analogies, I still do feel like as time has gone on, our response to these sorts of crises are very different. And again, I'm not necessarily calling for us to get into a direct shooting war with the Russians, but if this had been the 1990s, let's say, the debate would have been much more in favor, let's say, of a direct American involvement. I mean, we, we did this in parts of Europe in the Yugoslav, breakdown, right now Yugoslav, Yugoslav wars. In the 2000s or the aughts, you know, the, and you see this in Libya, there was the sort of leading from behind phrase that the Obama administration came up with, which is we weren't directly involved in hostilities, but, you know, again, from the rear, or we thought at least we would in this way. And now, 10 years later, the next war is we are willing to play, although a little bit slow, the sort of arsenal of democracy role, which essentially is arm and aid, but any direct involvement is not on the table whatsoever. And so on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, I still see a fairly clear trend in how we've done things, which is moving away from being that directly involved military power, and not in a peripheral theater, for that matter, in our, depending on who you talk to, primary or secondary theater of importance. So my question for you is not that anybody can predict the next war (laughs) or see the future here, but are you concerned that this is all still going in one direction? And whether it is in five years or 10 years, whoever is president and whatever the crisis is, whether it is Taiwan or whatever else, we won't even be willing to do the arming and aiding role? Or do you think that the situations are just totally different, and the, the administration has still gotten this fairly correct, or at least fairly in the right direction on what to do.
1: Yes. I mean, my answer to your question is yes, I am concerned about it, and that's an important reason why I wrote the book. It's also the case, I come back to the argument, the U.S. can't do everything. Further, it's a classic in policy making that on the most difficult issues, the most important issues often, these are very close judgment calls. Should we or should we not try to disarm Saddam Hussein and Iraq in 2003? That was a close call, although two-thirds of the U.S. Senate, including a majority of Senate Democrats, voted for it, and nearly two-thirds of the American public supported it. In retrospect, the decision to invade Iraq in quest of Saddam's nuclear program and his WMD programs was a mistake. That wasn't evident at the time. There was a bitter debate about it, but you're always making these decisions in the presence of incomplete information and uncertainty about outcomes. And as Clausewitz and others have said, no military or strategic plan survives the first contact with the enemy. I mean, there are always those uncertainties, and you need to think where we place our bets but we don't. So the fact of using our wealth, our weapons, our technology, our intelligence to back the Ukrainians, but not sending troops as a good logic to it. I would argue, however, that unfortunately Biden has always done this an hour late and a dollar short, and under the circumstances, and because of how outrageous, how awful, how barbaric, and how in utter violation of both traditional and contemporary international law, international agreements, the UN Charter, and practically every agreement. Russia and the Soviet Union have signed in their history how outright a violation of this is. It needed to be met head on. One could even have argued for the use of troops, but leave that aside. I'm not making that argument. What I am saying is that we've been aiding the Ukrainians, but we haven't been aiding them enough that it's important that Russia suffer a stinging defeat here. I recognize the risks because Putin is dangerous and unpredictable. But the notion that if we're a little nicer to him, we can shape his behavior accordingly, I think is a mistake.
0: So another alternative worldview that's put up as a challenge, let's say, to American primacy, which I know is the subject of a lot of your work, but particularly your previous two books, is this idea of sort of you know global governance, you know, of the United Nations, international law, of you know, the Davos world. In many ways, a lot of people interpreted the Trump administration's foreign policy as a critique of traditional Republican foreign policy, there's a little bit of truth to that. I actually always interpret it more as a broadside against the sort of liberal internationalist view of legitimacy coming from, you know, a global community and so forth. What has interested me the most about this Ukraine crisis, especially with obviously a Democratic president, is that he has certainly acted multilaterally. I mean, they've built a decent coalition, let's call it supporting the Ukraine, but they have not rushed, nor have they given veto power to the so-called you know, global community or UN agencies, which I find very interesting because it's not what I would have predicted given how the same cast of senior officials acted in the Obama administration mm-hmm. under similar circumstances. So I'm curious, do you feel that this viewpoint that I think was certainly rising in the 90s and early 2000s and still is there and certainly is there in large circles of the American electorate about the need for America to legitimize its decisions through international bodies, deference in these things. How do you feel that's holding up these days, given what we see now as the democratic standard bearer, for example, not necessarily availing himself of that approach?
1: Well, that view, the liberal internationalist view, has suffered a severe body blow for a couple of reasons. One of them is that the weakness of it is built in. The United Nations, created after 1945 by the victors, especially the Big Three or Big Five, if you like, was seen as the, the center, the focus of international law, of international authority, and so forth, ideally. And its ability to function lay in the Security Council and the five permanent members. The US, Soviet Union, China, Britain, in France. But the problem is that two of the five members of the Security Council, Russia and China, are revisionist powers. They do not accept the even the aims of the UN Charter, not least in provisions such as non-intervention in the internal affairs of other countries. For the signatories to the UN Charter that the use of force will be through individual and collective security, the guarantee of sovereignty, and so on. The best illustration of that, of course, is that in 1994, Ukraine gave up the nuclear weapons that it had inherited from the former Soviet Union. They had a huge collection of nuclear weapons, and to some extent, it was the workshop of the heavy weapons industry in the Soviet Union. It gave those back in exchange for something called the Budapest Memorandum, which guaranteed the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. And it was signed by Russia, the United States, Britain, and later by China and France. Those are the five permanent members of the Security Council. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, Crimea and the Donbass, and now in 2002, is just an outright violation of everything that agreement represented. And the fact that the Chinese have supported the Russians reflects that. So how can you have the UN exercise real authority under those circumstances? It's very rare that the UN can act effectively when lives and high stakes are involved. There have only been really two major unambiguous cases. One was Korea. In 1950, when North Korea invaded South Korea and the Russians had walked out of the Security Council in a huff over the refusal to see communist China. And the second case was after Iraq invaded Kuwait on August 1st, 1990, at a time when Gorbachev was running Russia, sorry, the Soviet Union still. And he and his foreign minister were very much partisans of cooperation with the civilized world. And so you've got UN resolutions which authorize the use of force in an unambiguous way. The case of Libya in 2011 is a little more ambiguous, but apart from that, it's almost impossible to find an instance in which the United Nations has authorized a significant use of force in this kind of a context. The other example is the European Union. The ideals of liberal internationalists are reflected in what's happened in Europe. And it's an extraordinary achievement if you think about World War I and World War II and their aftermath. The Europeans, the countries that fought each other and bled each other in such an awful way, have come together the way they have. But the EU is not a United States of Europe. It lacks the central authority and the capacity to make decisions and act on the great issues of war and peace.
0: So I I want to... Spend a good amount of time talking about China because I think while it is a little bit easier to dismiss the challenges, let's say, to the American-led order coming from the litany of kind of international law and organizations from the European Union and others, it's harder to dismiss obviously the China challenge as serious. You talk about China supporting Russia's war. I think it was former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Wark a few years ago, or maybe it was another highly respected analyst, Andrew Krepinevich, that basically said the United States has actually never faced an adversary or coalition of adversaries that represent such a significant percentage relative to its own GDP, global domestic product, and that the China challenge in terms of their economic power that they could potentially turn into military power far and away surpasses what the Soviet Union could do during the Cold War or even Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And so this is serious. And while I would never call you a realist, I don't think you would take that well in the same way. You are someone in all of your work that really, is, at the end of the day, says hard power really does matter, um, and which is should be the core of realism in the right way. But um, right. we won't go into that. Do you see the challenge posed by China as predominantly a military one? Or as I think a lot of folks, again, both in the current administration, but even amongst real CCP experts say, it's actually not quite that. There's a technological challenge. There's a subversion challenge. There's a co-option challenge, but that the primary threat is actually not a direct military attack on the United States, the homeland, its possessions, and to a certain degree, even there's that debate. Obviously, about even Taiwan, there are those who say, no, 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 they are absolutely planning a military assault on Taiwan. There are others who say, no, they're they'd rather kind of what they call win without fighting, which is figure out a way to kind of coerce it to come back or come into its fold. So, again, to just summarize or point on the question. Do you think that the China challenge that we face today is predominantly a military one, or do you think there are actually other elements here at play that are more important?
1: The China challenge is multifaceted. It's all of the above, rather than only one or the other. There is a strong military component to it, and the Chinese are very explicit about that. But it's also the case that the Chinese have violated the international rules of the road, Their actions against their neighbors, the predatory role they have played economically and geopolitically, their blatant violations of all the rules of the World Trade Organization, the intellectual piracy, the subsidies of domestic industries, the economic and technological spying, all of that are part of this this process. It's very important that we, we not be reckless or careless, but the more you pull back, the more you say, well, we won't worry about it, especially pull back into the US, cut back our commitments in Europe and Asia, the greater the Chinese world role will become. The Chinese seek a different kind of world order, one in which they are predatory, in which democracy, prosperity, rule of law, Alliances and all the rest are depreciated or worse. Look at the high tech Orwellian society that Xi Jinping is imposing on his own country over the last decade. It's like something out of Orwell's 1984 in terms of the use of the most advanced high tech surveillance methods in the totalitarian Maoist and Soviet style. Stalinist style, efforts to keep track of citizens in every aspect of their lives, that meets the criteria of totalitarianism, not just authoritarianism. And it's clear that in terms of the corrupt, dishonest, predatory role that the Chinese are already playing in world affairs, that that will magnify and grow the more China is allowed to continue that in an uninhibited way. It means we need to do more to support our allies, to encourage our allies to step up. Think of how the Australians are doing so. The Europeans have tended to increase their defense spending after having been told about it for generations, but also browbeaten by Trump who threatened to quit NATO and in reaction to a much more dangerous world of today than the world, say, of 10, 15 years ago. So all those things come into play. But there's a a kind of liberal internationalist undercurrent, which says if we're nice, things will change. If we show the Russians and Chinese and the Iranians that we're not opposed to them, that uh, we have no ill feelings toward them, they will behave more in a more civilized way. Well, no. The answer is the less they see the U.S. as a concern to them, the less risk averse they become. Two examples of that, because I think they respond as a direct answer to your question. One is an action by Barack Obama, the other is an action by Biden. In Obama's case, in 2012, when there were rumors that Syria and the regime of Assad was planning to use or actually maybe had used chemical weapons against its own people, Obama threatened that if they used or even moved chemical weapons for us, that would cross a red line. Now, when a major world power says that, it has a meaning. Well, presto, a year later, Assad used chemical weapons against a suburb of Damascus and killed about 1,200 of his own people. Obama at first threatened to act and then backed away from it. Instead, basically saying, well, the international community has to step up. He got a face-saving agreement with the Russians and Syrians to uh, do away with Syria's chemical weapons production and so on. Which was never fully enforced and which became a dead letter. The rest of the world, I think, in Russia, China, Iran, and so on, said to themselves, hmm. In fact, our allies, I think, were disheartened by that. The importance being when the US says something that's part of its deterrence and defense of its allies, or simply about the kind of world we want to live in, that's supposed to mean something. So here you have in the strongest diplomatic language. Obama saying this and then backing away from it. So in the following years, China became more aggressive in the South China Sea and against its neighbors in fortifying islands and inlets that do not belong to it under the law of the sea and interfering in the waters of other countries and uh, otherwise violating international law and regional agreements and so forth. So China there, Russia in Ukraine and. Crimea in 2014, and Iran and becoming more assertive in its region through the IRGC and so on. Flash forward to 2001, the chaotic, disorderly, incompetent way in which the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan in, on August 15, 2021 under Biden. A withdrawal he thinks was just fine and dandy, but his own military leaders opposed in the manner he did it, and we're very unhappy about, it. again, was a signal to the rest of the world, hey, the U.S. is pulling back. And for the revisionist powers, again, a signal, we don't have to be as risk-averse. We can be more risk accepting. Is it at least conceivable that Putin's decision to do what he did six months later in Ukraine might have been influenced by that I thought, well, given what Biden has done in Afghanistan, I don't have anything to worry about from the US. And an analogous things about the Iranians and the Chinese. Lastly, both power and diplomacy matter. They have to be coupled together. Realists make an argument that's an empty shell, and they tend not to accept that. The more sophisticated ones, a Hans Morgenthau maybe, or a Kissinger would but what passes for academic realism today is a travesty in many respects. Power without diplomacy is blind, but diplomacy without power is impotent, which by the way, suggests one of the core weaknesses of liberal internationalism and the devaluation of
0: power that it represents. A couple final questions for me. The first is, I always hate phrasing this, but if you were in charge, if you were president, let's say, given where we are, given that the challenge from China has reached a very serious point. So it's easier for us to look back and said, had we demonstrated a bit more strength or resolve, you know, five, 10, 20, 30 years ago, depending on how people look at it, it'd be different. But given where we are today, what are the two or three things that you would like to see the administration actually do in order to preserve that indispensable role? Let's say that the United States plays in the world.
1: We need a president who speaks thoughtfully and frankly to the American public. Great presidents have done that in the past. Roosevelt, World War II, for instance. Reagan at one point in the Cold War. uh, Truman, the Truman Doctrine. Presidents of both parties have done that. We have lacked that kind of candor, thoughtfulness, and substance in our most recent presidents. And it hurts. You have to Get the American public to understand why an active, engaged leadership world affairs is both necessary and essential for the U.S. itself, as well as for a decent world aware. So that's the first thing. Second, you have to put more resources behind a defense and everything that goes with it, including defense technology and doing the kinds of things we're finally doing to try to prevent the theft, or adaptation of American technology by the Chinese. Third, we need to put more emphasis on encouraging our allies to pull their weight. We cannot do everything. We should not do everything. In some respects, there have been haphazard or partial efforts at this under various administrations, but more needs to be done. Lastly, the domestic basis of policy is critical. It's again chapter six in my book. For example, the kind of analysis of America in the New York Times infamous 1619 project, a supplement, Sunday magazine supplement a few years ago, which argues that the real founding document of America was not the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but instead the first imported slaves to uh, North America in 1619. Leading American diplomatic historians have found enormous fault with that analysis. That is not the leading document. Slavery was an abomination, and it's a a sin, it's an awful part of America's past, but it's not the thing that defines America. Obama himself commented after his own election that it showed what America could be and what America is, so much for the notion this is a racist country. And it was either Obama or Bill Clinton who said, What's wrong with America can be fixed by what's right with America.
0: Bill Clinton. That was Bill Bill Clinton. That
1: was Bill Clinton. Okay. So it's those kinds of things which are important. So not to let the discourse about what America is all about be shaped by voices which are antithetical to America's original
0: purpose and current values. Final question for me. Throughout the book, and actually throughout a lot of your work, I think you do a great job of weaving together two narratives about the American role in the world. One is, this is simply who we are. This is the natural expression of the nature of our founding, of how we grew, the nature of our system. And the second is a bit more of a, let's call it utilitarian one, which is, you know if not us, who else? And if there are other challengers, none of them are capable or desirable, take the mantle in order to secure our own interests and those of our friends and allies and partners. Both of those narratives for different reasons suggest a sense of optimism of where the future should look because if this is truly who we are, even if this approach is more unpopular today in the American body politic than it was 10 or 15 years ago, this identity will win out. And even if it is more the utilitarian, well, you know, we would love to be able to step back, but let's see what it looks like. Events in the world, is reconfirming that. And similarly, should lead to increased support. And you listed a little bit of it over the past year in terms of forward presence in Europe. So should I read the end of the book as you being still fundamentally optimistic about what the American role should look like? Or do the challenges in particular, obviously, the one from China, leave us in a place where we have to be active players in getting that? We can't just count on these structural factors, structural narratives to get us there.
1: I've argued in a series of books, three of them with Cambridge University Press in 2005, 2012, and 2016. And I was increasingly less optimistic with each of those books and a little less optimistic now. I'm still cautiously optimistic with more weight on the caution. The asterisk is on the caution. (laughs) That's right. There's nobody else to do what the US does. The Europeans can't do it and won't do it. The UN is unable to do it. The alternatives are that the kind of world, really an authoritarian, dictatorial, predatory, corrupt, aggressive, law disregarding, piratical world uh, represented by China and to a certain extent, Russia and Iran, either broadly or in their region, in the case of the latter two, is more likely to be the fate of much of the world if we do not play the necessary role. So that's a critically important point about what the consequences if we don't do it. There are both positive and negative indications. The negative indications are raising a generation of young elites, think of the discourse in colleges and universities these days about America, wokeness, racist society, the focus on gender and identity and so forth. As well as the collapse of teaching of American foreign policy, military history, diplomatic history, and so forth. And the fact that only 27% of the U.S. public has faith in American institutions, according to a, it was a Gallup poll last summer. On the other hand, events have a way of imposing themselves, causing people to step back and say, wait a minute. I mean, a lot changed in terms of American opinion between 1939 and 1941 in Pearl Harbor as a result of being drawn into the war. In 1940, draft legislation, conscription, was up for renewal in the US House of Representatives. With continental Europe almost completely occupied by the Nazis, Britain fighting for its life, draft legislation passed the House of Representatives by one vote. But with Pearl Harbor, December 1941, everything changed. I think to a limited extent, the Russian attack on Ukraine helps to clear the air again about the realities of the world. It's not the same thing as 1941, but it, it matters. Two positive indicators. The American public continues to support Ukraine. There is trouble on the right wing of the Republican Party and the left wing of the Democratic Party, especially among the progressives, but the Dominant forces within both parties and the American public still support what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine. Second, a poll by in Chicago by the Crown outfit, which works with the a major foreign affairs organization in Chicago found that 81% of the American public supports NATO. That's the highest figure in 50 years. Surveys by the Chicago group have also found that the majority of the American public, by significant margins, want the U.S. to be actively engaged in world affairs. About a decade ago, those numbers looked like they were going to cross in terms of world affairs. A greater desire for the U.S. to pull back. That's changed, I think, with the recognition that China and Russia and Iran and North Korea and others are not going to go away. If we're nice, things won't change.
0: It sounds a little bit like that Aristotelian mean in the sense of, If you pursue the policies that lead to these events, these negative events happening more, it actually then reinforces some of the arguments that you're making that will help to prevent the arguments later. So not that we want or encouraging, obviously, some of these events or attacks or crises to happen, nor does the swinging of the pendulum, is that healthy for any society economy uh, in any ways? But there is a trajectory out there. There's
1: nothing inevitable here. We can make bad decisions, and we sometimes do. There's a quote attributed to Churchill, maybe apocryphal, uh, where Churchill is supposedly quoted as saying, Americans almost always do the right thing, but only after having tried everything else. And time and again, U.S. governments in the face of severe crises, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Depression, Cold War, have wound up doing the right thing, but often at immense cost after having passed up our opportunities to have done things differently. But it doesn't guarantee there will always be a happy outcome. But I think there should be no illusions that if we don't remain actively engaged, the consequences for the rest of the world and for us are going to be grim.
0: Well, with that, Bob, we're up against the hour. Really appreciate you joining us. Indispensable Nation, Indispensable Book. It's a great short-ish read because I think Bob writes with a lot of clarity. And Bob, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian Podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.AlexanderHamiltonSociety.org.